0: We're in 2 Peter chapter 1 and the whole message here is based on the fact that while faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what brings salvation, it gets us forgiveness of sins and helps us to know that we are truly born again on our way to heaven. It doesn't change much about life right here and right now. There are things that God wants us to do as Christians And the Bible said specifically about them that we are to add to our faith these things. And the Bible says, if we would do these things, the end of verse 10 says, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. And what we see happening around us today in churches, not just across this nation, but in churches all around the world, we see Christians either falling out of church or falling into sin, or having their lives fall apart, um, and, and that is not supposed to happen. Now the Bible said it would happen before the Lord returned, but you don't want to be one of those people to have that happen to you. And so the fact that Peter here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, "These are the things. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall." I think that that makes them incredibly important things for us to be in the business of doing. I do want to mention one other thing just before I get wound up and get wound into the preaching. I mentioned that the Hedrickses have got two guests tonight and the Smokers only have one. Uh, Meg is flying back to Australia on Wednesday. So those of you who have been chatting to her while she's been here, don't forget to say your goodbyes this evening because uh, by Wednesday evening, um, unless United Airlines does what all of the airlines do nowadays, she's got her fingers crossed. She wants to get back home uh, to Australia. So unless something goes haywire with the airlines, she won't be here by Wednesday evening. So, all right, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get straight into tonight's message because um, there's a lot of things that we need to cover in a short period of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here tonight, Lord. Uh, pray that you bless every person that made the effort to be here tonight, Lord, I, I know... Uh, at least one person that's not feeling well tonight and lord if there are any that were here this morning that are sick tonight we pray you actually i can think of at least two now i pray that you'll be with them help them to be getting uh better and on the mend again soon lord those of us who are here and any who may be tuned in to the uh through the the internet and live streaming tonight may they get something uh, from the word of god that will be a benefit and help to them Lord any who uh any lord uh, we don't know who's nearest to falling lord we honestly don't right now uh and lord we pray you'll be with whoever that might be and lord may something in the preaching tonight get them back from the ledge as it were uh, and lord if we know any who have fallen lord may we get something uh, that would we'd be able to use to get them back on the right path and back on the right track and we ask these things Not just for our sake, although we do truly need your help, but Lord, we ask it because you are worthy uh, of better than what this generation of Christians has been giving you so far. And we pray that you'll forgive us for that where we've fallen so short and help us to be shining examples of what your children ought to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we looked at this morning was virtue because in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 it says that we are to add to our faith virtue. And I talked a lot about how virtue plays out, what you do with virtue and that is whether it be an obvious thing that you're intentionally trying to do and that is the business of helping people. Uh, or whether it be something that you are not even aware of that you're doing, which happens as a result of people reaching out to you like they did to Jesus, touch the hem of his garments to be made whole. Um, that's how virtue plays out. But what virtue actually is, if you were to sum it up in one word, it is strength. It, that's what virtue is. It is strength, whether it be moral strength, strength of character, spiritual strength, um, and I, I mentioned as I was closing in prayer this morning, I, f- I fly a lot um, f- for work and sometimes uh, visiting family and things like that. And every time you get on a plane, when you get on a plane regularly, you tend not to listen to the safety announcement. What do they tell you during the safety announcement? Put your seatbelt on. They then go on and give you a, a, an explanation of how to put a seatbelt on. If you need it explained to you how to put a seatbelt on, that's deeply concerning. <laughs> it's not complicated business, is it? You just like one side joins the other and they go click. <laughs> okay, I can figure that out. Um, but they tell you that and they tell you uh, be aware of where the exits are. The nearest exit may not be the nearest exit may not be in front of you. Okay, that's 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 actually an important thing to think of. If your plane ever crashes one day when you're flying, and if there happens to be fire between you and the exit door, all is not lost. (laughs) Maybe you can turn around and there's a door behind you. The nearest exit may not be in front of you. It may be behind you. They tell you also that if the room is, the cabin is filled with smoke, then don't worry because there's little lights where... Along the floor to guide you out of the plane. It all sounds wonderful. I mean, it's almost like we want to have a crash just to find out if all of these systems work, right? Um, But one of the things that they tell you during that time is they have the little yellow cup. And the little yellow cup, they show it coming down from above and tug, tug on the little yellow cup. And then they tell you, what do they say? Put your own mask on first before you put it on any other people near you who need your help and that's how it is with virtue Um, we are supposed to do the things that the bible says we're supposed to do those things ourselves first and then we will have enough strength in order to assist others when we look at others and see all of their problems and are not dealing with our own problems Jesus talked about that didn't he when he said what are you doing worrying about the little speck that's in your brother's eye when you've got a beam hanging out of yours it tends to irritate people when you're busy fixing their problems and you haven't got your own sorted out and that's kind of part of what temperance is all about. It's about having spiritual strength and not leading so much by what you're telling everyone else to do, but leading by example. And once we've got that down pat, then the Bible says we need to add something else. We need to add to our faith virtue and to virtue, knowledge. knowledge. Um, the Bible says in the end times that mankind would be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth there is more knowledge generally speaking in the world today than there ever has been and it's very easy if you don't know something it's very easy to learn something nowadays there's even a there's even an acronym for for it l m g t f y anyone know what l m g t f y was it's not a new preference It's not the alphabet, people gone rogue. L-M-G-T-F-Y. That's, let me Google that for you. Uh, In other words, the answer to everything, you just type it into Google or, hey, Siri, or whatever. Um, um, Which, interestingly, by the way, uh, Siri, you wonder where they ever got the name Siri for? It's iris, spelled backwards, as in the all-seeing eye. Eh. yeah and siri is watching you 24 yes, 7 the all-seeing eye there's something to think about hey siri you know what i wish i could say hey siri go away and don't ever come back that would be nice but it's not likely to happen but knowledge is easy to come by wisdom is tremendously hard to come by um And the knowledge that he wants them to have here is not the knowledge of the gospel. Uh, And I can prove that to you from the text because according to verse 3, he's speaking to a bunch of people and he says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath, past tensed, called us to glory and virtue. Uh, Verse number Eight says, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is speaking here to a bunch of people who know the Lord as their Savior. And knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior will keep you out of hell, but it won't keep you from falling while you're still here on earth. There are other things that we need to know. And uh, one person said this, Uh, someone far wiser than I said this about what kind of knowledge is this and it's a very interesting thing Uh, I think it was from the biblical illustrator that I got this it says this knowledge is practical knowledge it is what we commonly mean by prudence which is knowledge applied to action it is what Paul recommends when he says be ye not unwise but understanding what the will of the Lord is walk circumspectly not as fools but as wise, walk in wisdom towards them that are without redeeming the time. This kind of knowledge, listen to this, this kind of knowledge results principally from experience and observation. And he is blamable indeed who does not grow wiser as he grows older and who does not make every day a correction of the former. In other words, we should be learning today from the mistakes of yesterday in order that we can be a better Christian tomorrow. Yes. It is a knowledge that understands that we are not perfect. We are still sinners. We are saved sinners, but we are still sinners indeed. But rather than just say, oh, well, I'm a sinner. I'm glad I'm saved. We say, I'm a sinner and I keep sinning and I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to prevent these things from from happening. And he goes on to say our own history affords us some of the best materials to improve and embellish our character. We should derive strength from our weaknesses and firmness from our falls. Peter here is saying that's the kind of knowledge that you need. You need uh, the kind of knowledge that says I have not always done well. I'm humble enough to admit that I've not always done well. I'm trying to learn from my mistakes. Yes, sir. There is a story. It is supposedly a true story. I don't know who here has ever worked in a factory or worked with uh, industrial equipment before. Um, Christina in the church office has a little machine to cut up pieces of paper called a guillotine. Roughly how many pieces of paper do you think you could cut up with that before it starts twisting them? About 20 sheets of paper. Okay, so that guillotine can cut about 20 sheets of paper and after that point it starts pulling the paper through and it all twists and it doesn't cut very straight or anything like that. That's a reasonably powerful little thing. I had a friend in Australia. I don't have any idea where he got this thing, but you could put an entire ream of paper and sit it in that machine And you clamp down one side of it and you clamp down the other side of it and you pull the lever and it would just go through an entire ream of paper like a hot knife through butter. Fantastic. Really powerful guillotine. In metal fabrication shops, it's very common that they will have a steel guillotine and it can cut through entire sheets of steel. Anyone ever seen a steel guillotine in action? Oh, they're fun, aren't they? I I just like things with power. Things with power are just fun. And you put that sheet of steel in there and uh, what do you normally have to do before you pull the lever to cut, what do you normally have to do? They, they normally have, most of, the, most of them will have like, there'll be a lever or a button that you press to, to do, but then on the other side of the machine there'll be what's called a safety handle. And you have to, with one hand, you have to press the safety mechanism and the other hand pull the lever. You say, why? Why? so that you don't get tempted to hold your piece of steel in place and pull it down and go ka-chunk. That's a good idea to put a safety mechanism like that, right? And there's a story about a, a, a person that had an accident at a manufacturing plant where they took off parts. I don't think they took off all of it. They took off part of a finger or something like that on the steel guillotine. They logged a, uh, lodged a workers' compensation insurance claim and the insurance company thought the whole thing was a scam and that they were trying to get money out of the insurance company, they sent an insurance assessor out and the insurance assessor said, that's not how those machines work. It's not possible for that machine to do it. See, I can safely put my finger in here like this and pull like this and bang and promptly took off the tip of his own finger. Okay? Now, what is that? I I I hate to put too blunt a word on it, but I'd say that's a stupid thing to do. Okay? Because someone has already said, if you do this, this will happen. And someone came along and said, I doubt it. They're not designed to work that way. They could have done anything. They could have taken a pencil and said, well, let me use my pencil as an illustration. If I put my pencil there and pretend it's a finger, and then they would have learned. And all they would have lost is a pencil. But instead, they lost part of their finger because they weren't learning. And so it is with this knowledge that the Bible is talking about. If we keep doing the same thing over and over again and sinning, if we continue to do that same thing and it leads to sin, we're not getting knowledge. And God wants us to get that kind of knowledge so that we will never fall. The next thing he says once we start getting some knowledge... Verse number 6, and add to our knowledge temperance. Temperance is what we would call self-control. When do we learn temperance? When do we gain temperance? It's interesting. I've just told you that illustration of the guillotine, taking your finger off, not learning. We gain temperance, we gain self-control after we have knowledge of our weaknesses and our frailties. How many of you understand that there is a Bible term uh, for sins that a, an individual person is prone to what there is there are temptations that some people have that others do not have and don't be critical of those people that have a temptation that you don't have don't be critical of that temptation because you've got one that they look at you and think i can't believe that he's doing that all the time What's the Bible word for that temptation to sin that you have that can trip you up? I think I heard Brother Terry say it. Boy, you got good ears. I think it's besetting. Besetting. And, and he also nudged his wife and he said, he's speaking about you now, honey. Uh, he didn't really. He didn't say that bit. Uh, besetting. Yeah, the Bible talks about besetting sins. And that is there are things that you have that are tempting to you and you need to be learning from those and temperance is when we have self-control we've learned from previous fallings we've learned from previous failures that we should learn to respond to a situation so we don't wind up in that situation again for instance some people it's usually a male thing more than a female thing, but it can be women as well. Some people are prone to fits of rage where they will act to actual, I'm gonna, I'm gonna punch someone. No one usually just punches someone just straight out of the blue. Anger builds up over time, right? So if you feel, if that's a problem for you and you feel anger building up, get yourself away from the situation that's what temperance is temperance is self-control you say i have knowledge oh i know what happened last time i got angry like this i took two guys a guy's front teeth out right and say i don't want to do that again because it gets real expensive to put his teeth back in for him I used to be a soccer referee. That actually happened, not to me. No one punched me as the soccer referee, but I refereed a soccer game where a guy knocked another guy's front teeth out. And there was a lawsuit involved and they wanted me to testify in the lawsuit. And you know, you say, oh, that's terrible. Let me tell you what's really terrible. The two teams, the two teams were churches. You say, that's bad. It gets even worse when I tell you they were the same church. It was a church in our town that was so big they had two teams. It was the Salvation Army A team versus the Salvation Army B team and someone from the A team didn't like someone on the B team and punched him in the face and knocked his front teeth flying. Um, if you feel that much anger building up, don't go doing that again because the guy got sued and it cost him a lot of money and of course, of course it cost him his reputation as well. Um Can I tell you something? I'll give you a practical example. This thing here, cell phone, is potentially a deadly weapon. This is a hand grenade in your pocket. Okay, People use these things to do all kinds of things, not with any intention of doing it, But some people use these things to lie about other people. Some people use these things to gossip about other people. Some people use these things to listen to music that they shouldn't be listening to. Some people use these things to look at things that they shouldn't be listening to. And some people are fine with this thing when they're around a group of other people. But if you leave them alone by themselves with their cell phone, then they'll start to do the wrong thing. I'm telling you the truth tonight. I'm telling you that young people, good young people in churches have ruined themselves over cell phones. I'm telling you that people have used cell phones and destroyed their marriages with cell phones. And I'm telling you that there is temptation in that thing. And if that's the case, knowledge would say, I know I have temptation And temperance would say, therefore, I will not use that thing when I am by myself. That's what temperance does. And if you won't get that, guess what Peter says may happen to you? You may fall. You may fall due to a lack of temperance. And then we get to, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience. Patience. There's a verse in Hebrews, I believe, which says, But ye have need of patience. Patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Never found in women and rarely in a man. No, some people say patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Seldom found in women, but never in a man. And both genders will argue with each other about how that poem is supposed to be recited. (laughs) And the reality is both men and women are prone to impatience. And let me just say this. Many people in my life that I've seen who have fallen, their fall would have been prevented if they had just been patient. One of my good friends, one of my favorite preachers, I recently heard him say this, and I know this person, I know this person very well, and what he said, I thought, that's, that's 100% true of that man. He was talking on the topic of patience, and he said, I gotta tell you, I got no use for patience. I'm like, no, no. And I know what he's saying, and I get where he's coming from. Um, Let's ask my wife, am I by nature a very patient person? No. Am I a let's do something now, let's just go, 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 go? Yeah, sorry about that. I don't mean to be that way. But here's the reality. People who are impatient are setting themselves up for serious risk of failing and falling in their Christian lives. The problem is not, I don't see the problem even with a person that is uh, that is lacking patience, but you need to get it. A real problem is when I hear, and like I just said about my friend, when he said, I've got no use for patience. Oh, God does. God's got a lot of use for patience. And, and might I say that uh, you'd better be thankful that he was patient with you. Once we start getting patience in our life as a Christian, what do we need next? And we add to patience, verse 6, godliness. Godliness. Now, if you study God the Father, it's going to be real hard for you to relate to His godliness because God, the Father, God cannot be tempted of evil, neither tempteth He any man. So that's a, that's a, that's something that you don't relate to. God as the Father in the Godhead in the Trinity as we say Uh, and I know that you know some people go oh the word Trinity is not in the Bible Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses love that Uh, Trinity is not in the Bible it's not even a Bible teaching how about Godhead Godhead's in the Bible and that is a Bible teaching and how about the fact that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God how about the fact that God was manifest in the flesh 1st Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 Oh, they'll proudly tell you, they'll say, well, my New World Translation doesn't say that God was manifest in the flesh. It says He was manifest in the flesh. What they don't tell you, what they don't tell you there is that every, and I mean every, I know manuscript evidence of Greek New Testament, every single manuscript that contains 1st Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says Theos was manifest in the flesh. A first-year Greek student knows the word theos is the word for God. It should not ever be translated as he was manifest in the flesh. It's God was manifest in the flesh. The New World Translation is a fraudulent translation. They intentionally mistranslated the word of God because it didn't line up with what they believed. Okay, So if Jesus is, as the Bible presents him to be, if Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, he is not God the Father, but he is God manifest in the flesh, then if you want to understand what godliness is like, it's going to be easier for you to understand that if you study God the Son rather than God the Father. Because God the Son lived here on earth For 33 years. And here's what I want you to understand. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. I'll explain something to you as we turn to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm sure at some stage you have either done something or you have thought something or you have been tempted to do something and in either doing that thing, thinking about that thing, saying that thing, it has made you uh, think, oh, oh, I'm, I'm not at all like God. And I'm talking specifically more about temptation to do the wrong thing rather than actually executing it and, and doing it. How many of you tonight you can be honest enough? I'm not going to ask you what it was that you thought, what it was that you were tempted to do, what it was that you nearly did, but you stopped yourself. But how many of you have ever got to that point where you actually refrained and restrained from doing the wrong thing, but just the very fact that you were tempted to do it made you feel a little dirty and a little bad just because you even got tempted? Anyone ever been there? You say, oh man, I'm, I'm not godly. I was tempted. It's so horrible to be tempted. Let's look at Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. It says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You say, what does that verse even mean? Well, the previous verse, verse 14, tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest. Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Our high priest... Is not someone who sits up in heaven upon a throne of marble with clouds and people plucking away on harps next to him. That is not our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was someone who came and lived on earth, dwelt on earth, and regardless of what you've ever thought up until now, you say, well, Jesus could never possibly be tempted to sin. That's not what the verse says. It says he was in all points tempted. Like as we are, the difference is yet without sin. So when you have temptation and you feel bad, not because you did the wrong thing, you just feel bad and you think, oh, he doesn't understand the temptations that I feel. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. He exactly understands what you feel in temptation. And the Bible then says, look, what do we do about it? Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. See, the natural temptation, the temptation that comes from the devil, is when you think something bad, you're tempted to do something bad, then the devil or your or your conscience comes along and says, oh, you're a bad Christian, you shouldn't even talk to God about that, he's not going to listen to you, you're terrible. And the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says you need to go and talk to the very one person who understands what that temptation is like, and say, Lord Jesus... You faced the same temptation I did and you did it without sin. I have not done so well. And you need to talk to the one person rather than talk to a priest in a confessional booth. You need to talk to the true high priest who will never snitch on you and tell you and tell someone else and say you wouldn't believe what brother John is tempted to do. He can go talk to the Lord Jesus Christ anytime he likes about his temptations. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus sits in the confessional booth of heaven on the mercy seat. And he says, John, I know how you feel. I went through that for 33 years. And you know what else he says? I wrote a book that will help you deal with that. In other words, I want to encourage you tonight that godliness may not be what you think it is. Godliness is not necessarily a stuffed shirt person who walks around with their Bible tucked under their arm. That's not godliness. That's a false pretense. Godliness is is a person who faces temptation and comes to Jesus and says, I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. That's godliness. So be encouraged by that this evening. Don't be discouraged by your temptations, by the the battle that goes on between your ears. Be encouraged to be godly and take it to your high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we to add to... Um, Uh, Our godliness, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. How many of you like like cars? I love cars. Cars are great. Okay, For all that I love to go running, uh, cars will get you to where you're going a lot quicker. Sometimes you need to get to where you're going and you don't need to arrive in a ball of sweat, which is what happens when you go running to these places. Cars are great. Uh, I like fast cars. Uh, nothing personal but if you're into electric cars and stuff like that i just don't understand you maybe maybe you like peace and quiet and I, I understand that electric cars they're very quiet i got other things i can do to be quiet i like cars that make a bit of noise have a bit of fun right do i have anyone else with me on that like yeah okay after all these quote-unquote fossil fuels are bad right the sooner we burn them all up, the better the world will be. Um, what am I getting to? Here's what I'm getting to. It doesn't matter how well you paint the bodywork on the car, how straight the bodywork is. It doesn't matter what you put under the hood. And, and the American way, let's, let's be honest, the American way is just put something really, really big under the hood. The European way or the Japanese way, you know, the European way is let's engineer it within a fraction of an inch of its life and make it a highly strung engine and the Japanese way is let's put a big turbocharger in there and we'll squeeze more horsepower in there that way and the American's way is just like let's just make it big. I mean, you know, 350 cubic inch. What a, uh, People back in Australia, 350 cubic inch, that's a 5 litre V8 engine. That's a big thing, right? Actually, 350 is bigger than 5 litre. That's about 5.7 litre. Uh, but, you, you know, the rest of the world looks at 350 cubic inch and says, that's a big engine. And Americans go, oh, that's a, what do we call that? Small block. <laughs> uh, we can go bigger than 350. We can make a 454. Uh, and you can have your fancy transmission, and a transmission, by the way, a real transmission. I know I'm driving a car; it's an automatic, but a real transmission requires the use of a clutch. And let's go, okay? Um, and let's have a good time with our manual transmission. And not everyone can do it, and that's good because that means if you can, and not everyone else can, it's a theft deterrent. The thieves, it's harder for them to steal it. Um, but for all that you can do to your car. And you can spend all of this money and you can pour tens of thousands of dollars into an engine and a transmission and a nine inch differential with a Detroit locker gears in it, and all of that stuff. If you put $80 tires on the back, you're not going anywhere very fast, right? There is literally, there is literally only one part of your car that separates you from the ground. What do we call it? the tires. And because of that, when something's really important, there is a saying about it, this is where the rubber meets the road. And brotherly kindness is like the tires on Christian life. Brotherly kindness is where the rubber meets the road. And it says that we are to add to our godliness brotherly kindness. Can I tell you this? Remember I was talking a minute ago about the stuff shirt guy that walks around Uh, so so all fancy with his bible tucked under his arm if he's not kind to his brother he's not godly because the man who has godliness will add to that brotherly kindness without even turning to ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 Many of you should probably know this verse off by heart, so let's see if anyone can uh, recite it along with me. Join me with me if you know this verse, Ephesians 4 verse 32, "And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you." How many of you got through that? You memorized that? Good. Can I tell you? It's an easier verse to memorize than it is to live. But God said we are supposed to have it. We are supposed to be not just kind one to another. Can I tell you this? We sometimes, the more conservative we get as Christians, we sometimes we get accused of being, and sometimes justly so, accused of being judgmental of others. They'll say that we're hypocritical, or not hypocritical, they'll say that we're critical of others, we're judgmental of others, and we just don't have much grace. That's what people will say of very conservative churches and Christians sometimes. May they never say that of us. You know what we, you know what we do? We hear about someone who has done something, and we tend to say, well, that is unforgivable. Oh, really? Interesting. When we get, and sometimes we don't say it, we just act it. Like, I'm not going to forgive them for that. You don't necessarily verbalize it, but you just don't forgive them for that. And the problem with that is Ephesians 4.32 says, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. You don't have to reduce, get this, you do not have to reduce your standards to forgive someone. You may have to elevate your standards to forgive someone. You say, well, they lowered the bar, they dropped the ball, they did this. Okay, but we're not talking about them anymore. What they've done is what they've done. We're talking about how you respond. And you need to be able to respond by forgiving. There may be one exception in the entire Bible. There may be one exception in the entire Bible. And I'm not just making this up. Look at what Jesus had to say about it. Woe to them that offend children. We have arrived at the point in this nation today where the political left are trying to turn the phrase child molester into hate speech And they're trying to instead call it minor attracted persons. You want to know how evil that is? Jesus said it would have been better for those people to have never been born. And he said if you find them the best course of action is to take a millstone and tie it around their neck and drop them into the ocean. That's what Jesus says about, quote-unquote, minor attracted persons. We must not back down on that issue. We must hold the line on that issue. I want you to think about something. What does the Bible call those people? The Bible doesn't call them minor attracted persons. The Bible doesn't call them child molesters. I'm trying to get you to think here. You know a person that commits adultery, the Bible calls them an adulterer, correct? A person who fornicates, the Bible calls them a fornicator, right? A person who commits the act of sodomy, the Bible calls them a sodomite. What does the Bible call someone that does something to children? There's not even a term for it. That's interesting. You want to know what God thinks of it? God says, I will not even associate a name or a term with what those people do. You say, why do I say that? Because within the context of church, within the context of church, and a lot of that, a lot of the offending of children goes on within churches. Let me give you my stance on that. If that happens around here, I will not forgive that person. And I don't believe there's a biblical mandate to do so. I'll put that person so far out of church, I'll kick them up the hind end until their nose bleeds. I understand it's the law court situation for the law to deal with, but I also understand the law doesn't have the moral courage to deal with anything the way they should nowadays. But any brother in the church that does something short of that, forgive them. Brotherly kindness. You know what I hate? I hate that you even have to address things like that. But we need to have kindness. And then once we've got brotherly kindness, it says the next thing that we need to have is charity. Charity. You say, what is charity? Charity is, and some of you are thinking, charity be if you wrap up your sermon quickly so we can all go home. Um, let me illustrate charity uh, in the Bible like this. Okay, it's a big book. I, I talked this morning about virtue and we found out how many times is the word virtue used in the whole Bible? Sorry? The youngest. The eleven. Okay, he said eleven. Okay, good. Eleven times in the whole Bible. I'm not going to ask you how many times charity is used in the Bible. I'm going to ask you something really interesting. Where in the Bible does charity, uh, first is it charity? That's what I'm looking for? Sorry, I'm losing my plot here. Yeah, charity. Where does charity get mentioned first in the Bible? There's a whole chapter about charity, correct? Where, where is that chapter? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Okay. so a whole chapter about it, but where does, where does charity first get mentioned? Is it mentioned in Genesis? It's not. Uh, if I turn to where am i there i mean i turn to psalms roughly halfway through the bible just there has charity got mentioned by the time we get to psalms it hasn't now i've turned to daniel i'm at daniel chapter 9 has charity been mentioned before daniel chapter 9 in your bible look we're three quarters of the way through the book here charity hasn't even been mentioned now i'm at john chapter 10 is charity mentioned by this point It's not. I'm going to turn to the first mention of charity in the Bible and then I'm going to show you how far through the physical pages of the book we are before charity even gets mentioned. It's fascinating to see how far we are through the Bible before charity gets mentioned. It's that far. I'm almost at the back of the book before God even throws in the word charity. You say, why is that important? How many of you believe that we're in the end times? We're near the back of the book. You know what we need now more than ever? Charity amongst God's people. The first time charity gets mentioned in the Bible is in Romans chapter 14 and verse 15 where Paul said, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. For all of these books of the Bible, all the way up till now, do you, Now, obviously, people needed charity and we should have been charitable, but God didn't put it in his word until we get that far through the Bible. I think that it shows you how important it is in these last days to have charity amongst ourselves. We can have charity without compromising our standards. What's amazing about charity is when God leaves it so late in the book before he starts talking about it is he uses a person that most people would accuse of being not very charitable to write about it, Paul. (coughs) Paul even addressed it himself. Paul said, some people read my writings and they accuse me and they say his writings are harsh and rough and nasty. And he's just a grumpy old man, that Paul. And Paul's, I'm not a grumpy old man, I'm actually charitable. What can we learn from it? Well, I think we need to learn that leaving a brother or sister in a sinful condition isn't charitable at all. Exposing sin is supposed to be done in a spirit of meekness, according to Galatians chapter 1, and that is... That we, uh, charity towards others, and this is a really important thing to understand. Remember I talked about how virtue, virtue is having strength not just to do what you need to do, but it's having enough strength left over to help someone else. That's virtue, correct? And we talked about putting your own oxygen mask on first. Charity is along similar lines, uh, because Romans chapter 10, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 14 verses 10 to 15, uh, talk about not putting an occasion, not putting a stumbling block in someone else's uh, way to hinder them. And so charity as a Christian is when you get to the point where you are genuinely interested in you helping others to succeed. Helping others to succeed. Um I've been playing guitar uh, since 1995. I picked up a guitar and started trying to learn to play. 28 years now. Uh, the guitar that I play here at church, I've had that since 1999, so it's a 24-year-old uh, guitar now, and it's getting better and better with age, like myself. Uh, I would like to believe that. <laughs> it's not necessarily true, but... um a few times in my life, I have taught other people to play guitar, and what's funny about that is uh, what I do is all very, uh, is relatively basic and simple. And I know a lot of people like to encourage me. And they say, "Oh, you do a fantastic job on the guitar," but I do a very simple job on the guitar. I play basic chords. I play the rhythm. Uh, and that's all I know how to do. I can't do all the fancy little licks and runs and hammer-ons and rolls and slides and all the good stuff that people like Nathaniel are learning to do. But you know what I've done a few times? When I've had people that have come to me asking for lessons, I have multiple times I have taught people how to play guitar better than I can. You actually can do that. Because uh, I can do very slowly... What some people can learn to do very quickly with their fingers, and so I can get to the person to the point, and you know what that is? I'm, I'm, and rather than be envious, I'm not at all, en- well, I don't want to lie. I'm, I am envious. I'm envious of how Nathaniel plays all his fancy stuff on the guitar. It's great. But he's my son, and I want him to do better than I've done, right? I want him to succeed. I want him to be good at it. And charity, a charitable Christian, is not just someone that tells other younger Christians what to do. A charitable Christian is saying, I want to help you, I want you to succeed, I want you to do better than I've ever done. A charitable Christian will say to our brother, oh you preached at such and such church last week, and you preached at a different church the week before. And charity is not when I am envious of all the different places he's gone to preach. Charity would be when I pick up the phone and call one of my friends and say, hey, you ought to hear this brother preach. He goes, all right. Charity is when we want others to succeed. Sir Isaac Newton, the famous scientist who figured out a whole bunch of things, was humble enough and honest enough to admit, he said, if I have seen further than others, it was because I stood upon the shoulders of the giants may we be willing to crouch down and let others stand on our backs and see further and go further and do better than we ourselves have done that's charity i want to ask you tonight as we get towards conclusion in second peter chapter 1 do you have do you have a desire and an obsession with helping others succeed These are the things, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, what are they? They are virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, charity. And the Bible says at the end of verse 10, if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. I wrote this message, I first wrote this message some months ago. And while I was working on it and writing this message, I heard of a missionary who fell. I don't know all of the details. Or I do not know all of the circumstances. I don't know what happened and nor do I know how it's going to play out in the future. I just know that the missionary fell. And as I was working on this message, it struck me. That there was something in these list of things, this simple list that Peter has written in the word of God. And had that man, had that preacher, that pastor, that missionary been paying attention to the word of God and doing what it says. You say, do you think it might have been prevented? I'll guarantee it would have been prevented. Because God said, if you do these things, you shall never fall. Who is likely to fall? Well, first of all, I'd say tonight, if you say, oh, I'm not going to. I'm I'm a good, strong Christian. I was raised in a good Christian home. I know this. I know the Bible inside out. Let me tell you something. Satan knows the Bible better than you know the Bible. And you know what Jesus said about him? Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning. Those who are likely to fall are those who think that they won't. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. I'll tell you who else might fall. Those who think I've heard all of this before. How many of you are familiar in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 through 13, there's a passage that talks about the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. How many of you have heard that passage before and wondered, what does that even mean? Well, if you read the passage, it basically recites that entire thing. Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. He says, the word of the Lord was unto them as that. He said, that's what the word of God was like to them. And then he goes on and he says, and so therefore, he says, the word of the Lord will be unto them, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, and there a little, and then it says that they may fall and go backwards and be broken. You know what God was saying to Israel? He's saying, you know what your attitude is? Your attitude is, everything that you preach to me, Isaiah, I've heard it all before. You're yeah, just building on the same precept. You put that that sermon on top of that sermon, that one on top of that one. Another guy's told the same story you told. He told it better than you told it. And he said to them, you're becoming yawning. You're becoming bored by all of this. And he said, and because of that, that's how the word of God is going to be to you. It's going to be this boring thing. You're going to turn up. You're going to go to church. You're going to say, oh, I've heard this all before. And he said, you're going to fall. You're going to go backwards. You're going to be broken because you're not paying attention because you think you've heard it all before. So we need to be careful. If you say, I don't think I'm going to fall, that you better be very careful. And if you think, oh, I've heard all of this before, I say, you'd better be careful. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and we'll be finished really quickly. I'm going to try and condense a fun story into a short period of time. Can I tell you something about this fun story? It ends with a guy dying. And you say, what sort of a weirdo are you? Fun story with a guy dying. Well, let me... Let me tell you my story. First of all, I'm gonna read I'm not gonna read the whole passage in Ephesians chapter six, verses ten to verse thirteen, but it's talking about the whole armor of God. And in verse thirteen, it says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and read it out loud with me, and having done all to stand. It's the opposite of fall, correct? To stand is the opposite of to fall. Now let me tell you my fun story where a guy dies at the end of it. There was a guy back in Australia years ago. He was a member of my church, Bible Baptist Church in Queanbeyan, New South Wales in Australia. Uh, his name was Warren Dunley. Uh, he wasn't a very tall guy. Uh, and Warren used to be a jockey. Uh, used to race horses for a living. Um, before Warren was a Christian, he was a jockey. And uh, as he got into his, I think mid thirties and so on, um, as metabolism changes, I think nearly all of us we understand that as your metabolism changes, it's harder and harder to keep your weight down, right? When you're a jockey, they don't pick the guy that's six foot four that used to be a linebacker, because the horse looks at him and says, "Uh, uh-uh, I ain't racing." Okay, they pick the tiny little guy, the little skinny guy, to be the jockey, right? And they have a weight limit, and usually they want to actually usually you want to, the, the jockey needs to be so light that the stewards of the horse racing actually want to put some lead in their bag in the saddle bag to get them to what's called correct weight for the race. You understand the principle? We're not gamblers. We're talking about horse racing a bit here. For well, we're not gamblers. Um, and Warren was a jockey, and as he got to the age in his life where it was harder and harder for him to keep his weight down, he would spend more and more time in the sauna trying to sweat the pounds off. That's what the jockeys do. If you've ever wondered why jockeys often have high-pitched voices and things like that, it's not just because they're short little men, it's because they've spent so much time in the sauna that the saunas damage their vocal cords and they start to talk like this after a while. How many of you understand that's, that's I'm not being rude, that's how a lot of jockeys talk. Uh, and it's from the sauna. Well, all of that working out in the, in the sauna and sweating it out wasn't keeping the weight down enough So someone suggested to him, hey, we got some pills and these pills, they'll help you shred the pounds. So he started taking a few pills to shred the few pounds. It's not too long once you start taking pills before someone offers you something else. And he started smoking a little bit of weed here and there from time to time. And then one day someone told him, if you really want to keep the weight off, you ought to try this stuff called speed. Oh, that'll keep the weight down. And his life spiraled out of control. He went from the occasional little pill and the occasional little joint and the occasional little bit of speed. Before he had hit rock bottom, he was a full-grown, uh, daily-habit heroin addict who would use cocaine, he would use methamphetamine, he would use ice, he would use anything he could get his hands on. He sold his house and used the money to pay for his drug habit and was making a horrible mess of his life he was introduced at a race meeting he was introduced to the prime minister of australia his boss introduced him to the prime minister and said prime minister i'd like you to meet warren dunley who is the lowest scum in the racing industry in australia that's sad isn't it would you agree with me that's a sad thing for a man's life to go in that direction Warren's drug dealer one day was a guy called Mick Kane. Mick Kane one day was chasing Warren around an apartment block with a semi-automatic weapon trying to shoot Warren over an unpaid debt. Mick Kane ends up getting caught by the police and ends up in prison. When he gets there, his wife's visiting him one day and Mick says to his wife he says I want you to get me the preacher you see where Mick Cain the drug dealer had been living the person who moved into his neighborhood was a missionary by the name of John Wheat many of you have heard that name before he was the missionary who trained me as a preacher and so the drug dealer says I want you to get the missionary and bring him to prison and he can talk to me John Wheat the missionary goes and talks to Mick Cain long story short Mick Cain gets saved Mick Cain, the judge, gives Mick Cain bail in spite of all of his crimes and tells him if he'll pay off a certain amount of debt within 12 months, he'll be a free man. Mick Cain pays off his debt literally 24 hours before the time limit expired and Mick is now a free man. Warren Dunley, my little jockey friend, Warren is at the shopping centre one day and bumps into Mick Cain's wife. First, and Mick's, and Warren's nervous. First thing she said to him, he says, she says, oh, Mick's been looking for you for about five years. And the blood drains out of his face and he's thinking, I'm sure Mick's been looking for me for five years. What she doesn't know is what's, what he doesn't know is what's happened to Mick in the last five years. He got saved in prison. He got freed from prison. He studied at Bible Institute. By this time, five years later, he's graduated from Bible college and he's a preacher. And she says, "Mix inside in the shopping center. You stay right here, Warren. He wants to talk to you. And Warren's thinking, I don't want to talk to him. And she saw the look on his face. She "No, no, 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 he's not trying to kill you. This is how people talk, you know. This is the, the, they're a different world that some of these people live in than the world you and I live in. He's not trying to kill you. He's a Christian now. He wants to talk to you about Jesus. And Warren's thinking, I'm sure he wants to talk to me about Jesus. Yeah. Here I come, Lord. Uh, and, and, but he, he stayed there and Mick comes out and Mick runs up to him and hugs him. He's like, Warren, Warren, I've been looking for you for years. And Warren looks at Mick and the first thing he thinks is something is different about Mick. This is this has got. I don't know what this means, but it's real. And he goes home and he has lunch with him. And on the very first day that they're having lunch together with the Bible open at the kitchen table, Warren Dunley kneels down on a old, worn out linoleum floor and he prays and he asks the Lord Jesus Christ to save him from his sins. And Warren gets saved that day. Many years later. Warren's brother is saved, Warren's mother is saved, Warren's nephew is saved, Warren's daughter is saved, Warren's grandchildren are saved, Warren's son is saved. He's got multiple generations of people, most of them attend the same church that I used to be the pastor of. You're wondering where am I going with this story? Warren became a preacher. He went, just like Mick went through Bible Institute and learned the word of God. Warren went through Bible Institute and learned the word of God as well. Now Warren, with his background and with his past, he was probably never going to be a pastor of a church. Not too many people want a pastor with that sort of a criminal record and a drugs background. Uh, he'd been divorced many years before. Just not an ideal candidate to be a pastor, but a faithful worker and man of God. So you know what he did? He figured, I can't be that, so I'll be what I can be. He packed his old four-wheel drive that didn't even have air conditioning, went into the outback of Australia. Meg knows exactly what I'm talking about, Alice Springs. He went out to be a, a, a missionary in Alice Springs, to the Aboriginal people. Now you can't, their culture is different. You don't just set up a building and say, hey people, you come to church, it doesn't work. You have to go out to where they are and you take church to them. So he had a little pulpit that he had in the back of his old Toyota four-wheel drive uh, and he would drive out into the rural outback remote locations uh, and he would pull his pulpit out of the back of the truck they would pull a mattress out of the uh, out of their houses and they would sit down on a bed mattress and they would have church in the outback and he would preach the word to the Aboriginal people. He did that for about seven years, uh, faithfully serving the Lord in the outback. From time to time, I would have him back at my church um, and have him preach. And re- here's, here's what I'm getting at with this. How many of you understand that I have a very bad memory? I, I forget a lot. Okay, I still remember the last sermon I ever heard Warren preach. You know what he preached? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 13. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And do you know what he said when he preached that? He said, I understand. He said, with the life I've lived. He said, with the substances I have put into my body, whether snorted, smoked or injected. He said, I understand. I don't expect to live a very long life. The wages of sin is death. And he said, there will probably come a day. He said, where I am too weak to wield the sword of the Lord. And he said, there will probably come a day where I'm no longer able to wear the whole armor of God. But he stood in the pulpit of my church back in Australia and he said, I'll tell you what I want to do. He said, when I'm too weak to fight, he said, I want to die standing. Remember I told you the story ends with a guy dying? About a month ago now, I got the news from Australia uh, actually it was probably about three months ago I got the news, Warren's really sick. He's got liver cancer, stage four, he's not gonna last very long at all. I wrote to him, and I said, I heard you, I said, I heard you got the, you got the big one and you're gonna die, Warren. We talked pretty openly and honestly to each other, and he goes, yeah, he says, I'll be in heaven real soon now. And I said, I, I said, I smiled when I heard that you're dying. Do you think I'm a cruel and sick person? No, I know Warren really well. And I said, I smiled because I know that you're going to be there in a hospital and I can just see it and I can hear it in my mind that you're going to be talking to a bunch of doctors and nurses and driving them crazy. They're all telling you you've got stage 4 cancer and you're about to die and you're going to be sitting there in your hospital bed telling them that you're a lot more worried about them than they are about you. And that's exactly how he was to the very end. About a month ago now, I got a message saying that uh, and, and his brother called me a few days later and he said, he said, Warren passed away. Warren lived with his brother at this point, um, his brother who got saved afterwards. And he said, um, he said, Warren went to church on Sunday morning. He said, Warren went to church on Sunday night. He said, after he, after church on Sunday night, he went and he went into his bedroom and he went to bed and he said, he didn't get up for breakfast this next morning. He said, I went into his bedroom and he was in heaven. Stage four cancer. Knows he's dying and all he's doing is witnessing to the doctors and the nurses stage four cancer. He says, I'm going to church Sunday morning. I'm going to church Sunday night and I'm going to glory before Monday. Can I encourage you tonight? Can I talk very openly with you about this? Most of you, most of you are never going to fall as far as Warren Dunley had ever been. Don't let him beat you at the end of his life by you falling. He stood to the very end. Most people would have looked at him at one stage in his life and they would not have said, that's a man that's going to die, a faithful Christian man. Nope, one man introduced him to the Prime Minister and said there's the lowest scum in the racing industry in Australia. Can I tell you something? A little drug addict guy that rode race horses for a living. Next time he's coming back, he's coming back on a white horse. And he's gonna have he's gonna have the ride of a lifetime. And I'm quite certain that when he stepped into glory, the words that he heard were, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. How many of you would say tonight, you say, I don't want to fall. I want to. I want my life to be a good example. I want my life to end well. If If the rapture doesn't happen, I understand we all want the rapture. But if the rapture doesn't happen, I want my life to end well. I want to end with a good testimony. I want to end standing. For the Lord. How many of you would say that tonight? Say, I want to stand. Well, this morning and tonight I've given you what you need to do. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall.